I'd ask if you could please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. And um, as, I, as I mentioned before, for the, the past, this is part three, really, uh, of, of Stephen's testimony of Jesus Christ. And this passage really goes um, all the way from, from chapter uh, 6, verse 8, all the way to chapter 8, verse 3. And we're just really focusing this morning on, on chapter 7, uh, 51 to 8, 3. But, um, but just to, to remind us all the context of, of, of what's taking place and, and of Stephen's sermon, I'm going to read I'm going to read the whole passage starting back at, uh, at, at chapter 6, verse 8. And if you are, are unable for, for health reasons or whatever, to not be able to stand for the whole time, then please, um, please feel free to, uh, to sit down. This is a rather lengthy passage. Acts chapter 6. Acts 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him all who sat in the council, saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? But And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. After that his father died. God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge that nation they serve, said God. And after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his affliction. and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction. And our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh, and Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there rose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly 
with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he grew mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who had wronged his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. You know, and 40 years had passed, and an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he, took, and he drew near to look. There came a voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place at which you are standing is holy ground. I have seen, surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, and then at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. This is the one who is in the congregation, the wilderness, with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And that they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers, so it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find, sorry, asked to find a dwelling place for God for the house of Jacob. But God was, it was, sorry, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Now picking up where we'll pick up in the message today. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? 
and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of their city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women, committing them to prison. This is the word of our Lord. May he write his eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Almighty God, as we approach this passage of Scripture, help us to see Christ. Help us to see Christ in the fullness of who He is. Work in our hearts by Your Holy Spirit to behold Christ with the eyes of faith and to proclaim Christ with our words and with our lives and even with our deaths, if that be Your will. We pray all of this for Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. It's common outside of courthouses to see a statue of, of a woman holding scales in one hand and a sword in the other. Commonly known as Lady Justice, this image is actually the, the pagan Roman goddess Justitia, the goddess of justice. And often th this idol is depicted as, as wearing a blindfold is tied to the to the statement and the slogan justice is blind and the the blindfold on the statue is supposed to represent the impartiality of the courts however as we consider the direction of the courts that we see in our own culture and in, in many parts of the world we'd have to say that that for most of the world there is no justice and the courts are not only blind, but deaf and dumb and stupid. And this is not just a, a modern phenomenon. Uh, of course, our minds go immediately to the trial of Jesus Christ. The court that condemned Jesus was deaf and dumb and blind and stupid and absolutely wicked. We looked at this last spring as we finished our studies in Luke's Gospel account. Jesus Christ, the only person who has ever been truly innocent, was put on trial by wicked men and condemned to die as a blasphemer in the most horrible death that wicked human minds could concoct. 
This verdict of guilty was a, a gross miscarriage of justice of infinite proportions. This morning, as we look at Stephen's witness for Jesus Christ, we'll see another example of a guilty, guilty verdict. It was another example of a gross miscarriage of justice. While not of the same magnitude as condemning Jesus Christ as guilty, this condemnation holds many parallels to the condemnation of Jesus Christ. In fact, it is because of Stephen's testimony of Jesus Christ that he is condemned as guilty, facing the same charges as Jesus Christ, and he's on trial with the same men who had condemned Jesus Christ. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling class. As we we'll see that the parallels don't stop there. Luke is showing with his masterful narration the parallels between Stephen and Jesus Christ. In fact, we'll see that it is really Jesus Christ who these men are attempting to put on trial here. These men charged Stephen with blaspheming Moses and God. They accused him of speaking against the law and against the temple. And Stephen responded by giving this kangaroo court a history lesson, a redemption history lesson that we just read from Acts chapter 7. Stephen walked these men through their own people's history from Abraham to Solomon to the prophets, showing how God was with his people wherever they were but that the people had rejected God's chosen messengers. Stephen is about to demonstrate that these men have done the same thing in condemning and killing the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now on trial for his life, Stephen does not focus on defending himself. Instead, he uses the opportunity to bear witness for Jesus Christ. I'm really jumping in here to the climax of, of Stephen's sermon. As I, as, as I explained earlier, this whole passage from Acts 6, 8 to, to 8, 3 is really one unit. It, it all goes together. As we saw last week, Stephen has shown from their own scriptures God's faithfulness and their pattern of rejection. So we saw last week that the Lord was with Abraham and his offspring, but the Egyptians rejected them. In verses 1 to 8 of chapter 7. The patriarchs rejected Joseph, but the Lord was with him. In verses 9 to 16, the people rejected Moses, but the Lord was with him. Verses 17 to 41. The people have rejected the Lord, and the Lord has rejected them. Verses 42 to 50. And this week we'll see following the same theme, the people's rejection of the Lord from verses 51 to 54, Stephen's testimony to the Lord and the Lord's acceptance of him, verses 55 to 60. And the people's rejection of the church, but the Lord's faithfulness to her in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. These people have rejected the Lord and the Lord has rejected them. They were about to kill Stephen, but Stephen has, is received by the Lord. Yet again, the people show themselves faithless, but yet again, the Lord shows himself faithful. We'll also see in this passage the verdict. We'll see the, the verdict of the verdict that, that, is, that is on the people. We'll see the verdict that is on Stephen. But again, ultimately, this is about the verdict that is on Jesus Christ. Man's verdict 
but the true verdict of God himself. So first of all, the people's rejection of the Lord in verses 51 to 54. Stephen's sermon is building to a climax. He's he's been charged again with with blaspheming God and blaspheming Moses, so speaking against the temple and speaking against the law. But Stephen responded powerfully by proving that God is with his people, not just in the temple, but that God is with his people wherever they are. He also demonstrated a, a high view of the law. However, the people had rejected God's messengers, even Moses. And it was they who had rejected God. It was they who had rejected God's law. Stephen is going to prove that these men before him had done the same thing that they had accused him of doing. It was they who had rejected God and his law, not him. The accused has become the witness for the prosecution. Let me just read what he says here, verses 51 to 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. Not very nice. Stephen is saying a lot of mean things about these men. But these things are true of these men. This is not just Stephen's verdict on these men, but God's verdict on these men. And we'll see later on. This He's not saying this in a, in a vindictive way. He's, he's saying this with, with love in his heart. This is an opportunity for these men to repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, whom they have rejected and killed. Likewise, when, when you talk to somebody about the gospel, I'm sure you usually preface it by, by speaking about God's law, that the moral requirements that God as Lord over all has over all people. And I trust that you ask questions of people in order to help them to see their, their guilt before the Holy God. Again, that, that might sound harsh. But, but it's, it's loving. If, if you have, have a, a deadly disease, if you have been bitten by a, a viper, and you have the venom of this viper coursing through your veins, and you, and you, you rush to the hospital, you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, don't worry about it, you're fine. Is that doctor helping you? Is that doctor telling you the truth? What about if that doctor has the antidote, the anti-venom, right there in his desk drawer? But he doesn't give it to you. And that's harsh. That's unloving. But this is what happens when, when we do not tell people the truth about God's righteousness and their sin before the Holy God. And we, when we don't offer people the opportunity to repent of their sin and turn to Jesus Christ. When I preach a sermon, I, I have to exegete the text. I have to study the Word of God in order to understand what that word means to the original audience. The word in its context, about what this passage is actually really about. Not just what I, I think it's about, but, but I have to study diligently 
to, to try to determine what it's actually about. I have to exegete the text. But I also have to exegete you. I have to consider where this, this passage intersects with your lives. But before I do that, I have to determine where this, this text intersects with my life. The, 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 the first prayer when I, when I begin to study a text I'm going to preach through is, is Lord, please help me to understand it and, and apply this to my heart by your Holy Spirit. So I have to exegete the passage and I have to exegete us. Stephen understands the, the text that he's preaching from. And Stephen understands the people to whom he's preaching. Because he knows that apart from God's grace, he's one of them. Remember, all the way through the sermon, he said, our fathers, he's, he's identified them. We, uh, he's, he's saying, I'm one of you. But here he shifts gears. He has repented. They have not. He has turned to faith in Christ, but they have rejected and killed Christ. And so that, that our fathers turns to your fathers. He's not one of them anymore. These people need to hear the truth of their guilt before the Almighty God. They need to know who Jesus Christ really is. Here they were presuming to pass judgment on Stephen, as infinitely worse, they presumed to pass judgment on Jesus Christ. But in so doing, they were passing judgment upon themselves. Listen to some of the words that, that Stephen uses. He, he calls him stiff-necked. This is the exact phrase that is used by the Lord in Exodus, Exodus 2 or 32.5, condemning Israel's idolatry with a golden calf. It's condemned and highlighted by Stephen in verse 40, 41. And in Exodus 32, the Lord says that he would have destroyed them were it not for Moses' intercession. Stephen is, is condemning these men as idolaters. He calls them uncircumcised. Now that might not mean a, a lot to, as, a, as an insult to us here, especially to women. You are uncircumcised in heart and ears. Circumcision was a sign that identified Jewish men as being part of the covenant community. An uncircumcised heart is an unregenerate heart. They didn't listen because of their dark hearts. Stephen is saying that they were not among the people of God. Stephen says that they always resist the Holy Spirit. Uh, apart from the, the sovereign, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, unbelievers will always Resist the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Stephen here is saying that they were not regenerate. He's saying that they are unbelievers. Remember, these are the men that were supposedly the, 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 the rulers. They were the spiritual leaders over Israel. And Stephen is calling them pagan unbelievers. 
And now Stephen ties their behavior to that of their forefathers. Again, as your fathers did, so do you. Again, notice the, the shift in pronouns here. It, it, earlier, Stephen has identified himself with the people, referring to the patriarchs as our fathers. Now he distanced himself from them, from those he's addressing, referring to those who persecuted the prophets as your fathers. Stephen is saying, you are like your fathers. You always reject God's people, and you always reject God. Jesus had similarly indicted the Pharisaical lawyers, pronouncing woe on them, saying, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Luke 11, 48. They had killed the prophets who announced the coming of the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Isaiah, who is said to have been sawn in two. Jeremiah and Ezekiel stoned. The most important message of their prophetic ministry, as, as of all of the Old Testament prophets, was the proclamation of the coming Messiah, who again Stephen refers to here as the Righteous One. This, this is also Stephen's testimony of the verdict on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Righteous One in the, the fullest sense of the word. Not only is he perfectly righteous, perfectly obedient to all of God's commands. But he is the righteous one. There aren't two righteous ones. These men were not the righteous ones. You and I are not the righteous ones. There's only a righteous one, and that is Jesus Christ. Stephen condemns their verdict on Jesus Christ. They betrayed and murdered him. It was the culmination of their unrighteousness. This was the culmination of all unrighteousness. This is the most wicked thing that anyone has ever done, and it reveals the motivation for all sin at its root. The motivation for all sin is rebellion against Jesus Christ. They're about to pour out their unrighteous hatred of Christ on Stephen. Stephen concludes his verdict against him in verse 53. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Again, the accused has become the witness for the prosecution. They had accused Stephen of rejecting the law, but it is they who are the lawbreakers. He said in verses 38 and 39 that, that our fathers received the law from Moses, but they had rejected Moses and turned to idolatry. And he's now saying that they are like their fathers in receiving the law, but rejecting the law. To reject the law is to bring down God's just wrath upon yourself. But to do so when it is delivered personally to you only adds to your culpability. In Psalm 147, 19 and 20, we read that God has declared his statutes and rules to Israel. He had not given any other nation that blessing. The Jews were privileged as, as God's people to, to receive the, the oracles of God. They were trusted to them, Romans 3, 2. But they had rejected the oracles of God and they had rejected God. It's high-handed rebellion. Everyone, even Gentiles like you and me, have the law of God written on our hearts. We had the law of God written in our hearts even when we were walking in willful rebellion. 
Romans 2.15. But if somebody warns you about a pattern of sin that they see in your life, and you dig in your heels and willfully continue in that pattern, you're adding to your guilt and heaping up wrath upon yourself. That is exactly what these men are about to do again. These men have charged Stephen and they are about to condemn Stephen. But he's giving them yet another opportunity for repentance. Just like Peter, Stephen is showing mercy to them and warning them of their guilt before the holy judge. And remember, these men have been warned repeatedly. Not only do we have the testimony of Jesus Christ at the trial itself, but, but in Acts chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and, and now in 7, they're warned again and given an opportunity to repent. So then at the point of Stephen's sermon to these men is this. You do not understand Abraham. You do not understand the temple. You have rejected Moses. You've rejected the prophets. You've rejected Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So how do you think they're going to, they're going to respond? We don't have to wait very long to find out. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and ground their teeth at him. Instead of repenting, they only grew angrier. And maybe you've seen that. When you bring, bring testimony of the gospel to someone, testimony of who Jesus Christ is to someone, they're, they're given a, it's, a, it's a point of, of choice for them. They're either going to receive Jesus or they're going to reject Jesus. They're either going to turn away from their sin and turn to Christ or they're going to run more deeply into their sin. And they'll, they'll blame you as an enemy for warning them because you have come in the way of that which they love more than anything else. The idolatry of their own hearts. I've seen this happen countless times. They were livid. Psalm 37, 12, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him like hungry sharks about to burst into a feeding frenzy. The, the anger in their hearts begins to, to seethe and, and roil like a volcano begins to rumble and quake as the molten lava churns before the volcano spews it out, consuming everything in its path. Now let's look at Stephen's testimony to the Lord and how the Lord receives him. Verses 55 to 60. Luke presents Stephen's frame of heart and mind as the exact opposite of these men. Luke presents him as a, as a stark contrast to the unbridled anger of his accusers. They were full of rage. But verse 55, he was full of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit in Stephen's heart has shone through ever since we first met him earlier in chapter 6. He was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Chapter 6, verse 5. He was full of grace and power. Chapter 6, verse 8. The, the, the Spirit-empowered character was on display all the way through these proceedings. And when they had brought their charges against him and, and fired their dagger eyes at him, what did they see? Did they see a man who was getting angry back at them? Did they see a man who was, was cowering in a corner? 
No, they saw that his face looked like the face of an angel. He knew who Jesus Christ is. And nothing these men could do, could do would knock him off the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit-empowered character of Stephen is on display all the way through his, these proceedings. It's humanly impossible to respond to a situation like that with deep abiding peace in your heart. In fact, it's, it's humanly impossible to respond to any difficult situation in your life with deep abiding peace in your heart, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Brothers and sisters, I have seen that deep abiding peace in many of you as you have walked through deep, deep trials. The deep peace of the Lord Jesus Christ has been deeper as the Holy Spirit has worked in your heart and empowered you to be able to glorify him. Now, I know it's not perfect. It's not perfect in any of us. It wasn't perfect in Stephen. But it's there because the Holy Spirit is there in your heart. This is not human peace. This, this doesn't come from him. The Holy Spirit has filled him and filled him with peace. But there's another reason for his peace. It's what he saw. It's what he saw. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now you need to understand what this means and what this reveals about the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as, as, I, as I'm reading through this, this passage and studying it, I, I thought to myself, Stephen doesn't get to finish his sermon. He never gets to reach a climax. Now you can tell where he's going with this, right? You can, you can see as you track through his sermon that he's about to declare that Jesus is the Christ and that they had rejected him like their forefathers had rejected Joseph and Moses and the prophets and that you must repent and turn to him. But he was interrupted. Now I was thinking, well, that these men had cut him off. I, I was thinking, if only we got to hear the end of this sermon. But then I realized that it wasn't these men that interrupted the sermon. It was Christ who interrupted the sermon. The vision of Christ interrupted Stephen's sermon. And this vision of Christ is an infinitely better climax to Stephen's sermon than anything that Stephen could have said. Not only did what he saw highlight a key point of his sermon, as he said in, in verses 48 and 49, that, that God does not dwell in a man-made temple, not in, in houses made by hands, but as he quotes Psalm 11:4, the Lord says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. And this vision of Jesus Christ and the, the glory of God is a revelation of just what Stephen has proclaimed. That God does not dwell in houses made by hands, but God's home is in heaven. And Stephen sees his home. And this home is about to become Stephen's home as well. Stephen saw the heavens opened. Stephen had a vision of what was taking place 
in heaven at that very moment. Stephen saw the ascended Christ reigning next to God the Father. The whole Trinity is present here. The Holy Spirit is indwelling Stephen. God the Father and God the Son incarnate are in heaven at the throne. And although every other reference in Scripture of Jesus on the, th- uh, on the throne is Jesus seated on the throne, but here we see Stephen standing. So rather we see Jesus standing at the throne. What's taking place here? I believe that Jesus is standing as the judge, giving his verdict on Stephen, as Stephen is giving his testimony of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the judge who is presiding over all, and his verdict is the one that matters. Again, by God's grace, preach that to yourself when when someone brings charges against you, whether they're right or wrong. Remember that there's a judge on the throne and his verdict is the one that is ultimate and eternal. This kangaroo court has no real authority, but Jesus Christ reigns and rules over all. His verdict on Stephen is the one that matters. And Jesus Christ is is not just over the men of this kangaroo court, but Jesus Christ is over everything. Jesus said in Luke 12, 8, And I tell you that everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. Jesus Christ is rising before the throne of God to acknowledge Stephen. At his own trial, Jesus had said in Luke 22, 69, And from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of power. And here he is standing at the right hand of power. The the Son of Man is, is not just the supreme king, but the supreme judge. His verdict on Stephen is not just not guilty. His verdict on Stephen is that Stephen is righteous. Imputed with Christ's own righteousness. That is the verdict on Stephen. And just think about some of the the things that that you have faced in your life, some some of the trials that you've experienced in the past. Okay, and and I know that the temptation to to relive things that have happened in the past, horrific things that you've experienced or, or wrongs that others have done to you. By God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, overlay the vision of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God over anything and everything that you've experienced. It changes everything. When you understand who Jesus Christ is, that he is reigning and that he is ruling and that his verdict on you, praise God, is that you are righteous by faith in him, that all that he has paid for all of your sin, that he's imputed to you, that he's credited to you his own very righteousness. That changes everything. And you know that he is ruling over everything even now. If you could see what Stephen saw, 
that would change everything, even over what you are experiencing now and even over anything that you will ever experience in your life. You know, I don't know what happens, what people see as they lay dying. There's only a few that we could confidently claim have come back from the dead. And only those are examples that we find detailed in Scripture. There's a lot of people claiming to go to heaven. People writing books about going to heaven and coming back. The only ones that I can testify for sure that they have died and come back are the ones that are testified in God's word. I don't know what they saw. We, get a, we do get a small glimpse of, of what, what Paul says when he's caught up to the third heaven, but he says he's not allowed to talk about it. But I think it's safe to say that we probably won't see what Stephen saw, not with our physical eyes. I mean, maybe, but I don't know. But as Jonathan Edwards put it, this beatifical vision of Yahweh is not a sight with the eyes of the body, but with the eyes of the soul. You can see Christ on his throne with the eyes of faith. And you can see Christ on the throne with the eyes of faith even now, at this very moment. As John Calvin writes, one day we shall openly behold God reigning in his majesty and Christ's humanity will then no longer be interposed to keep us back from a closer view of God. I long for that day when I will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, my Savior, and see him face to face for the first time. And that will be a moment that will long for it to continue for all eternity, and it will. Our son Owen asked me the other day, he said, what's heaven going to be like? And I tried to explain to him, I said, think of, of the most glorious thing, the most beautiful thing that, that you have ever seen. And that doesn't even scratch the surface of what you're going to see on that day. Seeing the ascended Jesus Christ changes everything. And you and I can see the seated Christ with the eyes of faith. Now Stephen testifies to what he saw in verse 56. He says, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Notice here that that he refers to Jesus Christ as the Son of Man. This is the only direct reference to Jesus Christ as the Son of Man, the only direct reference in, in all of Scripture apart from the Gospels. Jesus Christ often referred to himself as the Son of Man. In fact, it was the most common way that he referred to himself. This title, Son of Man, comes from Daniel 7 with the, the Son of Man in the clouds of heaven, coming before the ancient of days and being given dominion and glory and a kingdom. 
Stephen is echoing Jesus' own testimony of himself at his trial in Luke 22, 69. From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Again, we saw earlier, he's, Stephen is, is saying what Jesus said. Stephen is declaring that Jesus Christ is God. Now the volcano erupts. Now the sharks attack. These men cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran as one and rushed upon Stephen. They threw him out of the city and they stoned him to death. They believe that Stephen has committed blasphemy by proclaiming Jesus to be God. And the Old Testament civil law penalty for blasphemy is death by stoning. But this was not a formal verdict. And this was not a real court. Far more than that, this was not a righteous verdict. These men were the blasphemers. Stephen was proclaiming the truth about Jesus Christ. But their verdict on Stephen, their verdict on Jesus Christ, was a testimony of their own guilt. Now take special note of the fact that Luke singles out one guilty party in particular. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Make note of Saul. We'll come back to him in a moment. Falling to his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen, who has been rejected by these men, is now accepted and received by the Lord Jesus Christ. He enters into Christ's presence for all eternity. But with Stephen's final breath, he asks for forgiveness for this sin. Stephen is reflecting the death of the Lord Jesus Christ at his crucifixion. Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is a request that this sin not be counted against his murderers. The accused is now appealing to the judge for mercy for the truly guilty party. Stephen still cares for those he addressed. Despite the rejection of him, despite the murder of him. Now just think about your attitude towards others who have wronged you. You might think that you've forgiven them, but have you? Maybe you have to forgive them again. I found in my own life, sometimes I've, some people sin against me once, but I have to forgive them again and again and again. If you, if you find yourself avoiding that person, you really need to question whether you've actually forgiven them. If you find yourself complaining to others about that person, you have to question whether you've really forgiven them. If you find yourself rehearsing the wrongs that others have done to you in your own mind, 
you have to question whether you have really forgiven them. Because in reality, you're thinking the opposite of Stephen's prayer. You're, you're thinking, Lord, hold this sin against them. You're thinking, make them suffer for what they did to me. And if you're not going to, I'm going to. You, you think that their repentance isn't good enough. You think, yeah, I know I'm supposed to forgive, but this is so bad. You think they've done this to me so many times. Isn't it a good thing that God doesn't treat us like that? Remember the parable of the unforgiving servant. Who was forgiven a relatively small amount, a month, a month's wages by a fellow servant. Sorry, by, uh, from the king. A month's wages. And then on his way out from being forgiven that debt, he goes and throttles a fellow servant. Sorry, I messed it up. He's forgiven a lifetime debt. and The number of, is 10,000 talents. You, you could never pay that debt back. But then he throttles another servant who owed him basically a month's, a month's wages. And we're like that. And we fail to forgive others. Because we have been given an insurmountable debt. May we who have been given the riches of forgiveness in Jesus Christ be eager to forgive others as we've been forgiven and so and so to glorify Christ even as they sin against us it's glorious to overlook an offense and to forgive because then you look like Jesus and again you can't do this and on your own you can't it's impossible cry out to the holy spirit implore the Holy Spirit to strengthen you, to forgive you for holding on to that debt and, and ask for him to help you to forgive, to truly forgive. And when you're tempted to think about it again, put it away. That's what forgiveness means. Put it away. You're tempted to tell others about it, put it away. When you forgive, it's saying, I, I let go of any right to think about it or to talk about it. The crowd had rejected Stephen just as they had rejected Stephen's Lord. But Stephen's Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, received him into his heavenly home. So now as we conclude, let's see the people's rejection of the church, but the Lord's faithfulness to her in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. In verse 1, Luke comes back to Saul, and Saul approved of his execution. We, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that, that part of the, the, the men from this synagogue who had risen up against Stephen were a Hellenistic synagogue. And, and among, among the, the Hellenists, the Hellenistic Jews were Jews from Cilicia. And this is where Saul was from, Cilicia. There, there's a, a very strong likelihood that he was one of the ringleaders for bringing Stephen before the Sanhedrin. And, and we're told earlier that, that, that they laid the, the witnesses laid their cloaks at Saul's feet, and now we're told that he approved of the execution. Again, the sense is that he had a leadership role in what had taken place. 
In verse 2, the, the, the persecution spread, we're told. And there rose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they're all scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria. Except the apostles. This persecution arises directly because of Stephen's ministry. In Acts 11.19, we're, we're told that, that those who were scattered were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. That the enemies of Christ were emboldened with what had happened to Stephen, and now they're sending to stamp out the church. And the church is scattered. And the witness of Jesus Christ is scattered with it. It's scattered into Judea and Samaria. These people who are fleeing the persecution take the witness and testimony of Jesus Christ with them. Now remember back in, in Acts 1.8 when, when Jesus prophesied, he said and promised that, but you'll receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Do you think the apostles, those of the early church thought, oh, great, this is going to come through persecution. Oh, I don't think so anyway. I wouldn't. But it was through this mistreatment that they experienced at the hands of others that the testimony of Jesus Christ went out more broadly. And again, you and I can do the same thing. You and I can do the same thing. We can glorify Christ in the midst of the mistreatment of others by seeking to follow in the footsteps of Christ by forgiving those who have wronged us. You know, I, I, a situation happened the other day. And I have to confess that, that and many of know this out, know this, some of you have experienced this, that I am, I'm very sensitive to perceived injustice, especially when it's inflicted against me. And somebody said something to me that was a little bit rude. And I thought of my, my natural responsibility. But I thought about this. Not about the facts, I can overlook this offense. I can forgive this person. And so I can glorify Christ. And in the midst of that, the Holy Spirit empowered me to be able to let it go. I felt so much better than reacting and defending myself. Again, that was once. Pray for me. Pray for me. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. The, the, the verdict, uh, uh, their verdict on Stephen is the same as God's verdict on Stephen. But again, Saul, verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And we think, oh my, Saul, who's this guy? He's public enemy number one of the church. Many of you know who Saul is. Who Saul is now. Don't judge the story by the middle. We'll meet Saul again in the next chapter and in chapter 9. At the beginning of chapter 9, he's doing the same thing. He's still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He's still seeking to arrest Christians and to bring them in chains to Jerusalem. But as he heads to Damascus, with letters from the high priest to go and arrest Christians. It is him who was arrested on the journey. 
as he has an encounter with the risen Christ, as, as he sees the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he is knocked off his horse to the ground, and as the Lord Jesus Christ commissions him. As he asks him, Soul, soul, why are you persecuting me? The true reality is that when they were persecuting, when, when Saul was persecuting the church, he was persecuting Christ. And you can be confident that when someone persecutes you for the faith, they're doing the same thing. They're not ultimately persecuting you. They're persecuting Jesus Christ. And remember that. Remember that. And don't try to take your own self-defense in your own hands, but, but look to Christ. Was the ultimately is ultimately the one that they are persecuting. Pray for that person. And Saul becomes the apostle Paul. The Lord Jesus Christ answered his prayer. There's a reason why Lucas is, is such a great narrator. He mentions Saul, that they had laid their cloaks at the feet of Saul, and then he goes back to, to Stephen's prayer, and then he comes back to Saul again. He's, Saul bookends Stephen's prayer. L Luke is saying that Jesus answered his prayer, that, that Saul was forgiven. That Saul would become Paul. That the same one who had done so much to attempt to destroy the church, has done more than, than any other human being in all of history to build the church. Fully half of the books of the New Testament are written by the Apostle Paul, formerly Saul. Now think about that. Think about, again, that person, whoever it is that you're thinking about that has wronged you. Pray for their forgiveness. And pray that, that maybe through, through your forgiveness, your bearing testimony of Jesus Christ in your words and in your actions of loving a person who really doesn't deserve your love. You're glorifying Christ and maybe, maybe God will glorify Christ in their life as well. But even if he doesn't, he's glorying, glorifying himself in yours. Jesus was showing his faithfulness to the church. He was still building his church, even though it looked like the church was being torn apart. And he's still building his church today. Even through persecution, even as our brothers and sisters we pray for every week, are suffering for the name of Christ. Even through the mistreatment that you receive at the hands of others. Christ is building his church. He is sanctifying you through those trials and mistreatments. We have seen the verdict of the Lord Jesus Christ on Stephen. What is his verdict on you? What is his verdict on you? Well, it depends entirely on your verdict on him. Is your verdict Jesus Christ the same as Stephen's verdict on Jesus Christ? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is reigning the throne of God? Is he reigning over you? 
Is he your Lord and Savior? Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? If that is true, then the same verdict that was upon Stephen is upon you. You are forgiven your debts and you stand righteous before the throne of God. And one day, you will leave this life and you will be welcomed into eternity by the Lord Jesus Christ, just as Stephen was. So now, in the power of the Holy Spirit, bear testimony of Jesus Christ in word and deed. Proclaim his name and live for him. Follow in his footsteps by dying for him. And dying for him, not just at the end of your life, but by dying for him every day. Loving and serving and offering forgiveness for others, even those who have wronged you. Out of the unlimited grace you received, offer that grace to others. By God's grace, you too can leave this life like Stephen with prayer on your lips, love in your heart, and the Lord Jesus Christ before your eyes. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are reigning and ruling even now in heaven. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you are reigning and you're ruling over the hearts of many of the people who are gathered here this morning. Help us, I pray, as your people to love you and to serve you, to seek to glorify your name, to seek to bear witness for you, Jesus Christ, even as we seek to love and to serve and to forgive others, even and especially those who treat us poorly. Strengthen us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. Help us to do that which we could never do in our own strength. Help us to see and anticipate eagerly going to be with you for all eternity. And help us to live our lives with you before our eyes. For we pray it in your holy name. Amen.